Hello, and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker, and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest what-ifs. Its dukes inherited, conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to the Holy Roman Empire, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, A History of Valois Burgundy. Gamarjoba, and welcome to the History of Sacadvillo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and joining us today will be Trevor Cully and Brendan. Trevor is from the History of Persia podcast. Trevor, may you introduce yourself, please? Hello. Uh, as you said, I'm Trevor. I am the host of the History of Persia podcast. So I spend my time talking about uh, the empires, the big empires to the east of Georgia in Iran from about 700 BC to 700 AD, give or take. Yeah, the second or third one that uh, occupied Georgia or so. I think the first one, actually. Yeah. But actually, we are at the... Oh, wait, that's why we're doing this episode. We are at the point where uh, the Persian Empire is in charge. Or a Persian, I think. Wait, no, the Roman Empire is in charge now. For the most part. Uh, but the Sassanids were the one who put in King Mirian. Right. So... Um, and in doing so, I, the reason I brought Trevor here today is so we could speak about Zoroastrianism, because King Mirian III is Zoroastrian, and Zoroastrianism has been a very prevalent part in Georgian history. And of course, I thought, who better to ask than Trevor, since he's running the history of Persia? Uh, well, lots of people, but I will do my best to explain what is a very complicated religion because all religions are complicated, but also because it has a very complicated history. Yeah, that's, and I think you were able to like, also, I also know you so that it was, you're the easiest person to ask to, but, and I also do enjoy your show. So that's pretty much why I wanted to talk to you about this. At some point, I want to have, you know, some actual Zoroastrian educator on to talk to my audience, but I have to get to a point where that makes sense first, because it's still changing in my narrative and which is something we're going to get into here i think yeah so i'm guessing around the time the sassanids <laughs> yeah so i think i guess just get right into it zoroastrianism is a religion it is the traditional religion of ancient iran uh, it was the religion of the persian empires that was largely but not entirely stamped out over the course of the spread of Islam. The largest population held out in the city of Mumbai in northern India, smaller population held out in Iran, and over the centuries there's been a very large diaspora, but very large in the scale of a religion that only has maybe 200,000 followers worldwide. The basics of Zoroastrianism are they worship the god Ahura Mazda, also called 
Ormazd or Hormizd or Hormuz, any variation on that is the name of the god Ahura Mazda. He is the creator of the universe, and through that he created the Yazadas, which are what you could translate as either gods or angels, depending on how monotheistic the Zoroastrian you're talking to wants to be. There are movements in kind of both directions within modern Zoroastrianism. So to play it safe, I usually just say Yazadas or divinities. They are, in conjunction with Ahura Mazda, the creators of life and the physical world. There are a ton of them, but some of the better known ones are Mithra and Anahita, and less known by name and more by reputation is Atar, or Adar, the holy fire. And this is where you get into this weird thing where Zoroastrians have a reputation for being fire worshippers. And in one very, very specific sense, that's true in that they do venerate the Yazada Atar, who is the embodiment of fire. But Fire is sacred and put on a pedestal in Zoroastrian temples, not because it is a god, but because it is a representation of Ahura Mazda, which is complicated, but when you have to talk about things like fire temples all the time, is an important note to keep in mind. And then there's another category within that that is the Amesha Spentas, which are these seven beings that are simultaneously independent and the seven most important aspects of Ahura Mazda himself. And all of this is opposed by an evil god called Angramainu, or Ariman. And this is a direct counterpart to Ahura Mazda, where Ahura Mazda is the embodiment of everything that is good, Ariman is the force that is trying to corrupt it and make everything bad. And most importantly, that is the group of spirits called the Daiva, or the Devs. And these are, eventually in Zoroastrianism, basically the equated to demons. But early on, they were kind of envisioned as fallen gods. Uh, the gods who are no longer worthy of worship because they started doing evil things. And that is all filtered through the lens of two concepts called Asha and Druj. They're usually translated as the truth and the lie, but it's really a lot closer to divinely inspired cosmic order and the disorder that is the opposite of that. Asha being order, Druj being disorder. It's funny that you do mention like the devs, because that is an important part of Zoroastrianism, but even like throughout Georgian mythology, you'd find the devs there as well. And they're actually just, they tend to be these like huge troll-like beings who cause mayhem on the earth and kill a lot of people. And, you know, you have heroes such as the Georgian hero Amaran, who essentially goes out and kills all but three of them during his lifetime. So is it like, because the root, the root word does come from like the, the Persian dev or deva. So... I think that was just kind of something I would like to I wanted to point out to all the listeners out there who might recognize the terminology from our first our, our third myth episode. I'm sorry, what, what did you say the name of the evil god was? Alternately, either Angramainu or Ariman. And this gets into some linguistic stuff. The original language of Zoroastrian scripture and prayer is a language called Avestan, um, and that was spoken in different forms from about 1200 to about 400 BC, and might have evolved into things like Pashtun, or is at least related to them, but kind of falls off the radar for a long time. And in Persian, the name 
Unger Mainyu morphs into Ahriman over time. So you'll see them used kind of interchangeably in a lot of the more mythological texts. You'll see Ahriman more often. So with academic texts, is it just Ahriman mostly if it's relating to Persia then? It's a giant toss-up, honestly. Ahriman gets used a little bit more frequently than any of the later forms of Ahura Mazda for some reason. Uh, maybe just because modern Zoroastrians talk about Ahura Mazda a lot more. Especially in the Sasanid period, you'll get a lot of academic writing that talks about Ormuzd and Ahriman, and outside of that period, it's more of a toss-up of which version you're going to get. That's understandable. So that was actually a really good summary. I, I learned a lot from that. I really shouldn't be allowed to get away from talking about Zoroastrianism without explaining the name. Zoroastrianism was originally preached by a prophet named Zarathustra. Ahura Mazda revealed the nature of the universe to him through a series of visions and interactions um, that usually take the form of Q&A sessions between Zarathustra and his god. That name morphs into, through the same kind of processes, in Greek it becomes Zoroaster, which is how a lot of the West remembers it, and in Persian it becomes Zartasht. So again, if you see Zarathustra or Zoroaster or Zartasht, it's all the same name filtered through different lenses. And actually really helps lead into my next question, because I was actually going to ask, who are the most important figures in spreading Zoroastrianism, like overall and during the Sasanid era? Because the one I know about is Kartir, or Kardir, however you, it, however it's shown in your notes, essentially. Uh, yeah, and especially because this is an audio medium, it's worth pointing out to anybody who bothers to try and Google this stuff after there is no period or place in time with less consistent spelling than the Sasanid Empire. Perfectly consistent within their own Middle Persian alphabet, but in English, we have no idea how to transliterate these names. So you'll see Kartir, Kardir, Kardir, and that's an easy one. You'll also get Bs can be Vs or Ws or it's a mess. If you see something talking about the Sasanids and it looks vaguely like the same word, assume it is. In terms of spreading, how far forward in time do you guys want to go? Like Sasanid era, so that ends around the 700s, I'm guessing? Sure. I just didn't want to know, because you had mentioned in our messages before talking about Nisibis, and I wasn't sure how much of a cutoff around that you wanted, because... Yeah, so if, like, I did talk about Nisibis, and I think whatever makes more sense to you would probably be best. Okay, yeah, with King Mirian, he rules until the 360s, so he's old. All right, so for the spread of Zoroastrianism, which in a indigenous Zoroastrian context, you could also call Mazda Yasna, which is Mazda worshipping, as in Ahura Mazda worshipping. And that starts, obviously, with the prophet Zarathustra. That's around 1200 BC by most modern estimates. And that spreads mostly in Central Asia and Eastern Iran for a few hundred years. By the time you get to the Achaemenid Persian Empire in the 500s to 300s BC, it's reached Western Iran, and through the course of the Persian Empire, it starts to spread beyond that. They don't proselytize. They're not trying to actively convert people. But in the areas with either larger Persian military colonies like Cappadocia in Central Asia Minor or in 
Colchis and Armenia, where there's a much heavier administrative legacy because there aren't a lot of state-level administrative traditions in the Caucasus at that time, you get more of an influence from Persian culture than you do in somewhere like Babylon, where there's an established cultural precedent for a lot of these new institutions. So Zoroastrian beliefs and concepts spread into those areas, especially in the kind of continuum between the the Taurus Mountains and the Caucasus and the Upper Zagros. That's the heaviest area of spread really through most of antiquity. And none of it is formalized. It's just through cultural interaction until you get to the Sasanid era. Up to that point, there is no Zoroastrian church. Even though it's a monotheistic religion, or you know, at least a henotheistic or whatever you want to call it with one god and a priesthood, it operates a lot more like ancient pagan traditions in that every local variation kind of gets to do its own thing. But when you get to the Sassanid period, part of Ardashir I, the first Sassanid king who takes over the Parthian Empire, part of his goal is to centralize power using the influence of religion. So the first major influence on that, aside from the king who's creating this empire, is a guy called Tansar. So Tansar is the major figure around about 224 when the Sassanid Empire starts to form, and we don't know a ton about him. We only know that he existed because a letter that he wrote was preserved over time and translated into Arabic. But he lays the groundwork for a lot of what comes after. He There's a statement where he says that the church and the state were born in one womb. You know, So that's the kind of guiding philosophy going into the Sasanid period. But in that letter, you get a lot of basic conception about why Zoroastrianism is so fragmented. And rather than saying it's because it's like all the other religions that exist at the time, they blame it on Alexander the Great. Useful scapegoat, maybe not accurate, but part of the letter is this correspondence between Tansar and the independent king in Mazandaran uh, along the Caspian Sea. And that king accuses Ardashir and Tansar of being heretics to Zoroastrianism. And Ardashir has to respond and say that he is innovating new practices because they are necessary to unify Iranshar, which is their word for their empire, and to unify the Zoroastrian religion. So that's the groundwork. And then you get into Kartir. And Kartir is around for way too long. He is a guy with the title when he starts his career under Ardashir's son, Shapur I. Kartir is the Herbed or the Herbedon Herbed which means the teacher of teachers. Herbed is a priestly title for someone who educates the layman but can't do official ceremonies. And at first, he's influential, but not all-powerful. Um, Shapur I, uh, and you'll, you mentioned you wanted to get into this too, but I think focus on Shapur for a second. He introduces the prophet Manny into the equation. And Manny, who is the founding prophet of a religion called Manichaeism, is preaching a variant message on Zoroastrianism, but one that's really heavily influenced by Buddhism and Christianity, which are both spreading like wildfire on the periphery of the empire at this time. And Shapur gives him imperial support and money and like may or may not unofficially convert, kind of think like Constantine in the Roman Empire, you know, never 
white, baptized, but kind of doing all the routines. And Cartier is obviously, as the leading priest in the royal court, very opposed to Manny, but there's not much he can do if the king is cool with it. But what he can do is get in the ear of the king's son, Hormizd. And when Hormizd becomes king, he kicks Manny out of court, but he doesn't do anything about it. And he's only king for like a year and he dies. And uh, his brother, Bahram I, is the one who starts persecuting the Manichaeans at Cartier's prompting. And that's kind of the onset of active persecution and proselytization in Zoroastrian history, is starts with the Manichaeans, and then a few years later, Bahram I dies, his son is Bahram II, and this guy makes Kartir king of the priests. Kartir is promoted from the teacher of teachers to the priest of priests, the Mobedon Mobed, and that's the next rank up. They can teach other priests, and they can do official ceremonies. And now Kartir gets the unique privilege in all of Persian history of being someone who's not a king, but gets to create his own monuments. He gets to start proselytizing to non-Zoroastrians, and he gets to start persecuting non-Zoroastrians. And in most of the empire, this means persecuting Jews and Buddhists and Hindus and Christians and all sorts of different groups. But in the Caucasus, in Georgia and Armenia specifically, he has a kind of different agenda. It's not just persecuting non-Zoroastrians, it's trying to convert the populace at large to Zoroastrianism, which may not sound like a difference, but it's nobody was trying to convince Christians to become Zoroastrians in Mesopotamia. People were trying to convince the Georgian elite to switch their gods over and become wholehearted Zoroastrians. And this is unique in the kind of breakdown of the empire. Under the Sassanids, you have Iran, which is basically correspondent to modern Iran and all of the countries that immediately border it. And then you have, except for Iraq. And then you have Aniran, which are all of the non-Iranian peoples. And in later tradition, Aniran means the same thing as non-Zoroastrian. But under Kartir, it clearly doesn't because he views the Armenians and the Georgians as heretics. They are people who worship Ahura Mazda, but in the wrong way. Yeah, and um, that actually leads into another question I had because Marion III, he, he is the firstborn, uh, supposedly the firstborn bastard son of Bahram II. And when he was put into, into power... In Georgia, the king supposedly asked the Georgian elite, you know, he'll worship, you know, Armazi, but let him continue worshiping uh, Ahura Mazda. And in doing so, the chronicles report that he was both, he was essentially worshiping Armazi and Ahura Mazda, going, cleaning their monuments, going out and and making sure that everything was running smoothly. So it was a very devout figure. I I didn't want to ask, like, how much syncretism, syncretism did... Zoroastrian allow for with these other faiths, especially because Armazi is kind of like, it relates back to like the old Hittite gods, but it also has a lot of influence from over the years because of Zoroastrianism, from what little we know about it. Right. And this is one of those things where because Armenia acts as a bit of a buffer zone between Iran and Georgia, you can kind of see a lot more of the influence in Armenian mythology and Armenian 
pagan religion, where they basically have this subset of gods in Armenia that are identical to the list of gods you would get if you went to the Achaemenid capital at Persepolis and went through all of their archives there. And all of the Iranian gods mentioned there conveniently also pop up in Armenia. But you don't get quite as much of that in Georgia. You do get a little. You have, like you said, Armazi uh, has some connections, but also connects back to much earlier traditions. And you see that a lot in ancient religion where you have, uh, you know, some similar names and you just kind of mix them together because they're close enough, especially if they have the same job. But also in Georgia, I think you get the pairing of Inina and Danina, which are a pairing that have a lot of similarities to Anahita and Nane, which were an Iranian Zoroastrian Yazada and a Mesopotamian goddess, respectively, but they often interacted in Achaemenid and Seleucid and Parthian Iran, too. Um, so you see some of these same influences. And up to the Sasanids, there's never any pushback against the existence of other gods. Perfectly fine to worship gods from another pantheon. Sure, they exist. Ahura Mazda is just the best. Ironically, in the case of the Sasanids, a really prominent example of this is a god called Sasan, uh, who was popular under the Parthians and kind of drops out under the Sasanids. And you kind of wonder if there's something to it there. Um, it's not that they claimed descent from Sasan. It's just that people named their kids after gods. You know, you have a king named Hormuzd. That's, you know, it would be like naming your kid Yahweh in a Christian tradition. So there's no opposition to, especially in the early Sasanid period, to mixing pantheons, as long as you continue to do right practice and put Ahura Mazda first and do all of the right Zoroastrian ceremonies. But I also would wonder if, in the case of Armazid, that because Cartier was treating the Armenian and Georgian religious traditions as breakaway sects of Zoroastrianism, if a Persian coming into that situation would necessarily have seen uh, capitulating to that demand as anything particularly heretical or different from just continuing to worship Ahura Mazda. I just want to jump in and comment that it's really interesting that you mentioned that um, incorporating any other kinds of gods or divinities into your religion was fine at the time, as long as you put Ahura Mazda first and um, had the right practice. Because typically in the West, especially, we tend to define religion by what people believe. For example, that whatever denomination of Christianity is defined by the beliefs you profess. But um, in other parts of the world, you might find that it's more about a certain kind of practice or uh, community than it is making sure everybody believes the right thing all the time. Right. Um, and this kind of gets into a controversy in Zoroastrian history, not in uh, not a controversy between Zoroastrians, but a controversy between historians who talk about them. On one hand, there's a camp of people, and I have to admit I'm biased because I study enough of this that I have to have an opinion. There's a camp of people who think that there is a set definition of Zoroastrianism and they use kind of the peak of the Sasanid period as their baseline uh, because the religion was organized and well-defined and well-regulated, but it's before the Islamic conquest. So it's not a minority religion. 
uh, and it gets to do whatever it wants and develop however it wants. There's another camp, and this is where I fall, that says, well, that's a useless precedent to talk about anything before about Cartier's lifetime. Because how can you say if something before all of those definitions and rules were in place was Zoroastrian, if those definitions weren't in place yet, if nobody had come up with it? This comes up a lot when I'm talking about the Achaemenid Empire, because you know not all of the Zoroastrian scripture group generally called the Avesta was even written yet. So when Darius the Great talks about Ahura Mazda is a great god and he created the universe and he made Darius king, well, how in the world could he possibly be properly Zoroastrian by any later definition? Most of the things that we have that describe the Zoroastrian Yazadas weren't written down when he was making those monuments. Or no, not written down, they weren't written down for centuries, but weren't even thought up and composed yet verbally. So I fall into a camp that says, if you follow the basic outline that I gave at the beginning of this episode, that counts as Zoroastrian. But there's another prevailing narrative where you would say, well, that's Mazda Yasna, that's Mazda worship, but it's not Zoroastrianism because it doesn't fit this strict Sasanid definition of the religion. And it's that strict Sasanid definition that kind of blends more with the traditional Western understanding of a set of defined beliefs and practices. But that's really developing in the period that we're talking about right now. Yeah, I think I sympathize more with that view because it seems to me like the former view is taking a, a box of what Zoroastrianism is and then simply arbitrarily drawing it and saying everything in here is Zoroastrianism, everything else is not Zoroastrianism, as if religions are not internally diverse and as if they don't evolve over time. Sure, and I think you get when you get to a point where you have already defined a religion like that, you know, whether it's Zoroastrianism or you get a half dozen or so church councils deep into Christianity. And now you have a pretty set definition of what it is and what you know the general practices are. Then you can start taking things and labeling them as different. Like you have a group that's really prominent in Mesopotamia around the same time called the Nazarenes. And by most broad definitions, at this point in time, I think you could realistically describe them as Christian, but we don't because in our time, we have a very well-established definition of what Christianity is and the movements in ancient history that fed directly into it. And the Nazarenes aren't within that family tree. They're a branch that comes off very early and does its own thing. And that's something that you can get into with like Manichaeism, where it's not Zoroastrian, because it's very clearly breaking away and doing very different things at the same time that Zoroastrianism is becoming well-defined. But if a similar movement had happened 200 years earlier, it probably would have just been one more regional variant of the same broad category of Mazda worshippers, and without the backing of an extremely well-developed imperial patronage system, never would have spread beyond whatever little collective 
came up with those ideas. Oh, perfect. And so, so essentially, Manichaeism didn't have a lot of influence within, like, the, within the Sassanid Empire, really. It's just kind of like Shapur allowed it to spread somewhat, and he kind of fed money into it. But once the Bahrams came in and Hormuz, they were just like, nope, I'm getting out of this because Cartier says differently, or... Right. So you kind of have to think of it in a sense that... Cartier is this major authority figure. He is the highest religious office that exists at the time, even under Shapur. So he's this young, very important guy in court when Bahram I is growing up. And so he's doesn't have the ability to influence Shapur, but he can whisper in Bahram's ear. And because Bahram likes him, he can whisper in Bahram's son's ears too. And it moves on from there. So Manny has a lot of political influence at this really early point and has a lot of social influence until Bahram II has him executed. After that, Manichaeism remains a significant minority religion, um, kind of on par with Christianity in parts of the Sassanid Empire, and ends up kind of getting pushed over time into the steppe and gets adopted by some Turkic groups uh, and eventually ends up as a another significant minority religion in China. And it always has some level of important social influence, but its political influence is really nipped right at this point. Alrighty, so that kind of like goes into one of the questions I did right now was, you know, with Cartier, how much power did the fire priest and Magi politically have in the realm? Because it seems like Cartier is a very powerful figure because of his ability to whisper into the Bahram's ears and his son's ears and basically kind of getting that momentum into what Shapur wouldn't let him do. Right. So you you have guys like this every now and then. We don't always know their names who are able to, who don't have a ton of influence on the sitting king, but they are high enough ranking and important enough that they can have a lot of influence on that king's son if it's not being monitored. So the high priest, the, the Mobadon Mobad, is always able to have some degree of political influence. And the king is always a check on that. You know, the king is, the, the buck stops the king and it's up to him whether or not he listens. If the high priest is someone who he's known his entire life and the series of early deaths in the early Sassanid dynasty means that Cartier is able to really build up power with, you know, by the time you get to Bahram II because he's like an uncle. But then when Cartier dies, that power goes with him. So you get to, you know, Bahram's successors, you don't have a ton of influence or don't, you know, don't have a ton of influence from their high priests. But then you skip a little bit forward in time and you get to King Shapur II. And now you have a really influential high priest named Adorbad e Marspadan, or, you know, just Adorbad because that's a mouthful. And he's really influential in another way. He's not influencing a ton of political influence, but he's massively important for the religious institutions. He is, continues Cartier's agenda of centralizing Zoroastrian authority, uh, and he's the first king, or not king, sorry, the first leader in about 300 years to really try to collect Zoroastrian religious knowledge. And this is a project that had been set up all the way back with Tansar, who 
lamented that everyone had forgotten how to read the sacred writing and knowledge of the Avesta, the traditional prayers and hymns of Zoroastrianism, was fragmented and only partially remembered by some priest and partially remembered by other priests in different ways. And what I think is very funny is that the sacred writing that he's talking about is almost definitely old Persian cuneiform. There's nothing, there's nothing he would have been interested in at all in there. But he saw these monuments with this big fancy writing that nobody in the world could read, and he assumed it must be lost religious knowledge. So they know that they need to collect all of this knowledge. And there'd been attempts in the past, but they never really took off because the empire was never centralized enough. But by the time you get to Adurbad and Shapur II, there is enough central power to command the priests of the empire to get together and write stuff down. And so they do that for the first time around here. And as an extension of that, Adorbad really cracks down on what he sees as Zoroastrian heresies. And what that actually means is just the organic, naturally existing regional variants that are all over the empire. This means in Iran, all sorts of different things. But then in Aniran, you get back to the Armenia and Georgia question. And Georgia, I think at this point, is outside of direct Sassanid control, but Armenia isn't. And there's a crackdown on Armenian traditional religion because Adorbad is cracking down on what he sees as Zoroastrian heresies, which includes Armenian belief in gods like Aramazd, which was just, in his view, a variant form of Ahura Mazda. And that repeats in and out over Sasanid history. You fast forward a bit, you get to Yazdegerd I, and Yazdegerd I's wife was Jewish. She was the daughter of the leader of the Jewish diaspora. So he's not cracking down on anybody, but it really irritates his priests. But there's been this period of turmoil, so the priests don't have a lot of influence with the sitting king. And then there's more turmoil. And when the priests get some more power, it's in the reign of Bahram V, and he really starts cracking down on things again. So it goes in cycles like that. Another big figure is not a priest, but a very pious minister, I guess you could call him, called Mer Narsa in the court of Yazdegerd II. Uh, and he, this is probably the biggest period of crackdown in Sasanid history. This is uh, about 439 to 457. So obviously the Caucasus have all officially Christianized at this point, And this is when there's the most direct persecution of Christians and Buddhists and other minority religions in the empire is under Yazdegerd II and Mer Narsa. Alrighty, and just like the last question I had, would Zoroastrianism started going down a downward spiral after the Treaty of Nisibis? Or is it, as you mentioned, just that cyclical nature of things get strong, things go into turmoil, get strong again, back into turmoil? So you could say it went into a very gradual downward spiral, I think, because of the Battle of Nisibis and... Rome kind of getting an important foothold in the Caucasus uh, and Mesopotamia right around the same time that Rome is really heavily Christianizing. And part of the reason that by the time you get to Yazdegerd II, there's never a big crackdown on Christianity again, is because at that point, Rome is so heavily Christianized that 
the Sasanids recognize that persecuting a universalist religion with an empire behind it would create a really easy fifth column, and they shift to start supporting whatever Rome considers a heresy at the time, whether it's monophysitism or, you know, Nestorianism, whatever Rome is most angry at at the time, the later Sasanids start supporting that end of the church instead of cracking down on it because now they have a real Zoroastrian hierarchy at that point. Zoroastrianism is very secure. It's not going anywhere unless something crazy were to happen, like an empire that didn't exist two years earlier suddenly invades. But if Rome is allowed to be the only people who like the Christians, then all the Christians are going to start advocating for Rome inside their empire. Nobody wants that. But it takes a long time to get to that point. You know, Nisibis is in the third century. End of the third century, yeah. And there's no support for there's no support for Christianity in the Sassanid Empire until the sixth century. Um, and there's regular crackdowns against all sorts of minority religions in the interim period. You could see that as a downward spiral in that eventually they have to stop, but it's more like they eventually reach an equilibrium. Um, and it's also between Zoroastrianism and Christianity in the Caucasus, one goes in and kicks the other out and attacks the indigenous religion. And then the other goes in and kicks the other out but keeps attacking the indigenous religion, which is in the long run probably to the detriment of Zoroastrian influence because now there's not a third group that has more in common with Zoroastrians than they do with Christians. So as long as the local elites want to favor Rome, you know, that's an inherent point in favor of Christianity in those regions, and there's nobody left to advocate for the Zoroastrians and the Sassanids except for real Zoroastrians. And they've spent a lot of time you know, trying to formulate that, but then also a lot of time getting kicked out and converted by Christians. So, you know, a, a downward spiral that takes 300 years and then flatlines, sort of, but not, you know, there's never a death throw for Zoroastrianism before Islam. So basically, Islam's the thing that just basically comes to Zoroastrianism and just basically puts a huge stop sign in front of it and takes over. Yeah, absolutely obliterates any sense of Zoroastrian political influence for the rest of time. There are some holdout kingdoms, especially uh, in the Mazandaran region around the Caspian Sea. There's, you know, some rebel movements. Uh, there's a group called the Karamis who they say they're Muslim, but they do a lot of Zoroastrian things. I, I didn't, I actually do not know a lot about Zoroastrianism myself and what little I got from the from my area of study was just kind of oh you know this is kind of mentioned but it's kind of the same thing with within Georgia where once the Christians came in they started kicking out all the Armazian Zoroastrian priests because they held a lot of land and it was to the benefit of the Georgian elite to where they could actually go in take this land back and then give it to the church and once it pleased Rome or Constantinople. And then two, it also helped the, you know, the Georgian elite kind of go in and like get a lot of money back. So it was like kind of an economic thing as well for Georgia. It used to be able to kick out all of these Zoroastrians. Sure. And the, yeah, the economic benefits cut both ways. It's just that if when uh, Miran the Third gets there, 
he views the Armazids as a place where he can just kind of get them on the right track and now call them mobeds. Well, then you don't have to take anything. You just integrate them into the empire as it stands. But the Christians obviously can't do that anywhere other than Jerusalem. Nisibis happens and Georgia decides, oh, I'm going to go with Rome now because I have another option if I don't surrender to them. The Treaty of Nisibis did stop a lot of the things in the Caucasus for the Sassanids just because the influence went back to Rome and to please Rome, they had to kind of give up things in the Caucasus. That being mainly Zoroastrianism. Uh, yeah, and, you know, the there's back and forth. You'll get to the LASIK War and you know, the other 90,000 wars between the Sassanids and the Romans that trampled their way through the mountains. But you know, because every single shift means less people who under even a loose definition could be called Mazda Yasni, that's, you know, Zoroastrianism ends up at an inherent disadvantage because for every person they get on board, it's one less person who you know, could have held out against the Christians when the Christians come and systematically do conversions against Zoroastrians. You know, the Christians only have to really target one group, whereas every time Zoroastrianism gets back in, you kind of have to go after two distinct categories, at least as, you know, the Sassanids see it. Yeah, and so essentially with the Sassanid kind of conversion of like the Caucasus ended up being their own undoing when the Christians came in is what I'm kind of getting because since they don't have any more of that, that diversity in religion, the Christians were able to kind of come in and trample over the Zoroastrian faith. Yeah. I, you can really view the Sassanid effort to centralize Zoroastrianism as a double-edged sword, because on one hand it did enable them to create a kind of state within the state that could exert significantly more social pressure than just having the government. Now, creating that centralized institution of a, you know, quote-unquote Zoroastrian church was really important to making the Sassanids so much more stable and powerful than the Parthians had been. On the other hand, in the Caucasus specifically, treating the local religions as Zoroastrian heresy really undermined their ability to combat Christianity in the long term. Now, when they started that pressure under Tansar and Kartir, there was no way for them to realize that would happen. But the heavily institutionalized and hierarchical priesthood is one of the things that probably led to you know a lot of different religious movements peeling people away from Zoroastrianism and sped up, if not wholly enabled, the Islamic conversion process. Because, you know, you have this suddenly, for the first time ever, very centralized religious authority. And anybody who disagrees with that, or, you know, wants a less centralized religion, well, all of the Eastern variants of Christianity that are getting popular at the time, you know, especially before Rome converts fully... Well, those are less institutional, and Manichaeism is less institutional, and Buddhism is less institutional. And in the 6th century, you get the Mazdakite movement, which is a definitively Zoroastrian sect, but also one premised on the basis of rejecting the existing hierarchy of priests. And that becomes insanely popular 
for a few decades before there's a royal crackdown in another one of those instances where the prophet Mazdok gets in really close with the king, but the high priest gets in really close with the king's son, and there's a lot of political tension at this time. And then when the king's son is of age, the high priest leverages that to institute a pogrom. But you have these regional movements outside of the power centers that are constantly pulling people out of Zoroastrianism's political influence. And a lot of that is in response to how overly centralized it becomes in this time period. Well, at the same time, becoming that centralized in the first place really sped up the formation of imperial power. Well, I think that is all we're going to do for today, because this is getting to be about an hour. Uh, Trevor, thank you so much for coming onto the show today. Uh, it was really enlightening to kind of hear like more about Zoroastrianism, especially for us laymen who don't know much about the whole thing. And especially with you knowing where to get all these sources for the Persians, it's really helpful that you're able to come onto the show today and help us with this. Also, you're your first podcaster guest too. So that's awesome. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you are. Well, I mean, I suppose I kind of count, but I'm also involved in making it in some level. He's Yeah, Trevor's the first podcaster to be on our show. <laughs> well, i happy to do it. Yeah, as I said, happy to do it. If your listeners want more about Zoroastrianism or Manichaeism specifically, I do talk about it. I will talk about it forever. But if you want a really good, less than 100 episode long breakdown of it, I really recommend finding the Literature and History podcast, which did episodes on Zoroastrianism and Manichaeism a couple months ago. I think it's episode 82 and 84. It's a really good two-hour explanation instead of 20 hours. Those links will be down in the episode transcription. Yeah, and of course, uh, there's me. Find me, uh, historyofpersiapodcast.com, or just you know, type in History of Persia into whatever app you're using right now. I'm in there. Nobody else is doing this stuff. And, you know, it's also on our website under our friends page, probably one of the top ones there. Um, episodes in the episode transcription links will also be provided to Trevor's RSS feed and his website and his anchor page as well. Alrighty. Well, thank you again, Trevor, and uh, have a good one. Yeah, of course. All right, have a great weekend, Trevor. Have a good day. <laughs>